Open our eyes and open our ears to receive what you have for us today in your word. In your precious name, Jesus, amen. Well, I don't have a very long sermon, which is fine, because we spent some good time worshiping and some good time in in prayer and whatnot. But I do have some words I want to give you, some things that God has put on my heart. So if you would flip your Bible open, if you have a Bible, flip it open. John 5. There's one Bible sitting on a windowsill. There might be a few in the back over there in the, in the library. Feel free to, to grab one. Or if you've got it on your phone, you've got an electronic Bible. Uh, John 5, I'm going to read it for us. And I'm reading verses 1 through 9, the first part of 9. I was going to go all the way to the end of this uh, section, but we're just going to focus on verses 1 through the first part of 9. Okay? This is what it says. It says, after this, now just pause right there. After this, this could be a long sermon if I pause every two words. After this, what is he talking about after this? Last week, you remember we preached on Jesus healing the royal official's son? Do you remember this? He told the man, go, your son will live. And the man went back and his son was alive. That's the very last thing that happened in the book of John. So when he says after this, he means after that episode, after Jesus healed that man's son. Okay. All right. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there is a pool, called in Hebrew Bethzatha or Bethesda, which has five porticos. It's a gate, it's a, you know... Uh, an enclave, enclave, you know, sort of an indent in the rock there. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And one man was there. He'd been ill for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We've been focusing in on John, the book of John, and different miracles in John. And there's not a lot of miracles uh, that John um, provides a lot of context for, but this is one of them. This is another one. And we're going to be exploring it today. The name Bethsatha or uh, Bethsatha or uh, Bethesda or uh, just different things in different translations. It means house of mercy, right? House of mercy. But I would submit to you that this uh, is a bit of irony. I would submit to you this is not a house of mercy. In fact, the, the testimony of this man is that he's been lying here sick for thirty-eight years, and though he was clearly sick for thirty-eight years lying here in the same spot, no one had mercy on him. No one offered to take him into the pool. Nobody, uh, when the pool was stirred up, said, hey, you know what, Um, honestly, I need my healing, but I've been sick for a year, and Joe over here has been sick for 38 years. I'm going to let him go ahead of me. Nobody had mercy on this man. So when we say Bethesda, there's a bit of an irony there. There's a bit uh, ironic twist, uh, t- ironic twist to it. I would say this is not a house of mercy. Yet when Jesus arrives on the scene, you see, it was a house of mercy in name only. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, suddenly it becomes a true house of mercy. Suddenly somebody is having mercy on somebody else. 
and it becomes a house of mercy only with the presence of Jesus. Sisters and brothers, you can't understand what true love is until you've experienced love from Jesus. You don't really know what it means to forgive somebody until Jesus enters the scene and forgives you of everything you've ever done. You don't really know peace. You don't really know peace until Jesus comes and shows you what peace is. We try and create peace in our world. We try and create love in our world. We try and create these things. But without the presence of Jesus, they are pitiful examples of what love and what peace and what forgiveness are supposed to be about. Peace always comes at the cost of war for us. For Jesus, he's able to produce peace without war. He's able to produce forgiveness without shame and mercy, without having to give away justice. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The day when this house of mercy truly lives up to its name. So it says here in verse 6, it says, When Jesus saw him lying there, Say saw with me. Say saw. Turn to your neighbor. Say saw. Good job. Okay, now there were dozens of people at this place. There were several people there. And Jesus saw one man lying there. I imagine that like today, some people might have faded into the scenery a bit. You know, you'd be walking through the streets of Jerusalem and that area of the city was just sort of known as a place where invalids kind of gather. So you don't really notice. They've sort of become a part of the architecture, you know. They've sort of blended into the environment. Sometimes I think we come, even, might even come to church and kind of want to blend into the environment a little bit, you know, go unnoticed. I want to let you know something incredible. Something might be a little scary, but it's also incredibly wonderful. Jesus sees you. Jesus sees you. I may not see you. You may not be seen by other people, but Jesus sees you. He doesn't pass anybody by. To Jesus, nobody has faded into the background. Everybody comes to the foreground for him. And so even if you're at a time in your life where you don't feel, maybe you feel lonely, maybe you feel alone, maybe you feel isolated, but I want to tell you something. Other people might not see you, but Jesus sees you. He sees where you are. It's a little frightening because you can't escape his gaze. Maybe sometimes we want to. It's a little frightening, but it's also a wonderful thing to know that in my darkest, deepest hour, in the times of my life when I feel the most alone, I'm not. The times when I feel like the world is the darkest around me, it's not. There is, there is someone who sees me. There's someone who still knows me. Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had been there a long time. Jesus saw this man, and he knew him, just like he sees you, and he knows you. Later, we're going to find out that the sick man, uh, if we read on, you'd find out that the sick man didn't even know Jesus' name after he was healed. In fact, some people come to him, and they say, who is it that healed you? And he said, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who that was. You see, the sick man didn't know who Jesus was. But Jesus knew this man. And that's how it is. 
Some of us come to Jesus at a very young age and we grow up in the church and we, all these stories are familiar to us. For other people, that's not the case. They grew up outside the church. They grew up you know, in a different situation, different household, different country. But the realization is that when you, when you start to figure out who Jesus is, you realize he knew you all along. He never had his eyes off of you. Jesus saw this man and he knew him. Even before the man knew who he was, he knew him. This man will not even be able to describe Jesus to the people who ask him, but Jesus has numbered every hair on his head. He knows him. The love of God is not a general love. It's not a general feeling of warmth. I think that sometimes we uh, can sort of romanticize it a bit because we look at, for example, John 3.16 where it says, for God so loved the world. And we sort of imagine, you know, God with his hands around the whole world and loving the whole world. But that's not really a, a, a full picture of what, Jesus, what God's love is all about. God's love is not a general blankety love. God's love is a particular love. God doesn't love people. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves that person and that person. And he has full and complete love for every person. A particular kind of love. Not a general blankety sort of we're all feeling the warmth of the sun. But a very particular sort of God has numbered the hairs on your head sort of love. The particular kind of love where when you talk to somebody, your neighbor or your coworker, you may not know everything that's going on in their life. But Jesus does. He has a particular love for that person. A particular love for that particular person. So Jesus saw this man and he knew him. Jesus saw the man, he knew them, and it simply says that Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him, do you want to be made well? Jesus still speaks today. Jesus still asks this question about us Oh, your body may not be in pain, sisters and brothers, but maybe your heart is breaking. Your heart may not be breaking, but maybe your mind is struggling. Perhaps there's something in your life that feels like a mountain. Perhaps a relationship is starting to unravel. Perhaps your conscience is heavy from sin and wrongdoing. You have a need in your life. And this morning, Jesus wants to let you know that he sees you, that he knows you. And then he's asking, do you want to be made well? I'm a pastor, I'm a a person, I'm a a preacher. I don't have, I'm very uh, realistic about this. I don't have any ability to make you well. In myself, I am just a person. I'm just a person just like you. So when I ask you the question, do you want to be made well? I hope that you're not hearing my voice ask that question. Because if you were coming to me, assuming that I can make you well, you're going to be very disappointed. Just like we would be disappointed any time we come to another person and expect that person to fill a need in our lives. You may not do it with your pastor, but do you do it with your loved ones? Do you do it with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Do you do it with your coworkers? Do you do it with your career? 
you come to your career and you say, oh my goodness, I have a need in my life to feel fulfilled, to feel like I'm worth something, to feel like I have what it takes. Oh career, would you meet that need? You're going to be disappointed. A career is never going to be able to fill that need. That spouse is never going to be able to fill that need. As much as spouses are wonderful, as much as careers are wonderful, they can't fill those deep needs that you feel. Jesus is the only one who has access to that kind of fulfillment. So when I ask the question, do you want to be made well, I hope you realize that there's somebody behind me asking you that question through me. Jesus can move through me. Jesus can heal through me. Jesus can touch lives and restore relationships through me. But he's standing behind me, and he wants to know, do you want to be made well? Would you like to be made well this morning? I don't know you, but Jesus does. I may not see you, but Jesus does. I can't heal you, but Jesus can. Do you, would you like to be made well? We're going to have a time of prayer afterwards, by the way. I'm going to ask that question again. And then we're going to pray for each other. Acknowledging the fact that we're not looking to each other to fulfill our needs. But the Jesus who lives inside of you can touch somebody else near you can heal somebody through you. That's how God works, through people. So I'm here as a representative of Christ, as an agent of God. Paul calls us ambassadors, as an ambassador. I have the privilege of presenting that question to you. Jesus holds the keys of life, and he asks, would you like to be made well? Sir, says the sick man, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm making my way, someone else cuts in front of me. 38 years is quite a long time to be sick. It's quite a long time to wait for healing. Uh, And as much as it is a hard time and a long time, I, I would dare say there may be some among us today who maybe if it's physical healing, but maybe it's something else that perhaps even you've been struggling with for longer than 38 years waiting by the poolside, seeing healing happen in front of you, but never reaching it yourself. This man had resigned himself to his fate. He'd accepted the fact that he would be forever sitting by the edge of the pool in a desperate situation, without mercy, without hope. And Jesus' question shakes this man from complacency. It seems like such an obvious answer. Yes, of course, but that's not what the man says. He may have had the desire to be healed, but after 38 years, his hope had all died. He had no hope. There's a sad story in psychology. I say it's sad because um, we would never be able to do this sort of experiment today. It's, it's unethical, uh, but there was a time when it was not. And that is, they, scientists want to figure out what a rat would do when it was shocked. Um, and so they put a rat in a metal cage. And they, they applied electricity to it, enough shock to make it uncomfortable, not enough to be lethal. Um, and they shocked it, and just find out what it did. Well, what would happen is uh, the rat would, it, when it was shocked, it would, of course, run around the whole cage looking for a way out, you know, get, get away from the shock. But the entire cage was made of metal, so there's no way for it to go. And so after it was shocked, and then it would run, and then it would shock, and it would run, and after a while, uh, what the scientists observed was the rat simply laid down. 
simply stopped looking for a way out. It had simply resigned to the fact. I say it's sad because we would never be able to do that today, thank goodness, because it's very unethical. But that is exactly what we see in the people's lives around us. Somebody's going through a struggle. Somebody's going through something hard. They can't find a way out. Maybe you've tried all different kinds of things. Maybe you've tried to get out in one way or another, but you never, every single time you get close to the finish line, something trips you up. And so now there's nothing to do but to lie down and just wait. Wait for it all to end. This man had given up all hope. For 38 years, he'd been sitting there. I wonder how long he lasted before he resigned himself. I wonder how many times he tried to get up and get into the pool of water when it was stirred. I wonder how long it took for him to just, you know, you could imagine just one day as the water is being stirred up, it's the first day when the man says, you know what, honestly, it's not worth my effort. I'm not going to get there anyways. And from that point on, a loss of hope. Here's this man, and Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? And the man can't even summon enough courage to say yes. He can't summon enough hope in him. Sir, I have no one to help me, he says. I think about our community. When I got here uh, uh, six months ago, I think now, uh, and I was exploring the community, exploring Lincoln City, one thing that struck me um, on on a sort of like a, a spiritual sense or an emotional sense, however you want to play it, uh, was a sense of hopelessness in our community. A sense of resignment. You know, how many in our community have just, they've tried to get ways out and now it's just like, my, drugs is my, is my answer because it masks my pain. Or how many people are, are, are going through a relationship and they just say, it's just too hard. It's just too hard at this point. I have no hope for this relationship to get any better. How many people do we have living on the street who have given up hope? Family promise is a good way to instill hope in people again. To say, no, no. You may be down on your luck right now, but you can get back up again. There is a way out. But you know what? There's people that you know I don't know them, but you know them. People who have resigned themselves, who have given themselves over. We should never be satisfied with a life of pain. We should never be satisfied with a life of sin. We should never be satisfied with these things. When Jesus comes, it says that he came like a light. John says, the light shines in the darkness. And you can gloss over that real quick, but I want to tell you what that means. What does it mean to a world living in darkness? What does it mean to a community that lives in darkness without any path in front of it, without direction, without the sight to see what's right and wrong? Jesus comes like a light into our darkness to say there is a morning here that's coming. There is a sun that's beginning to dawn. Jesus comes and he shakes this man up. He says, no, 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 no. 
have hope. Keep hope. This place may not seem like a house of mercy, but with the presence of Jesus, suddenly it becomes a house of mercy. Walter Brueggemann uh, is a theologian that we read occasionally on Wednesday night. This is what he said. He says, hope on one hand is an absurdity too embarrassing to speak about, for it flies in the face of all those claims that we have been told are facts. Hope is the refusal to accept the reading of reality which is in the majority opinion, and one that does and one does that only at a great extreme political and existential risk. On the other hand, hope is subversive, for it limits the presentation of the present, daring to announce that the present to which we all have, all have made commitments is now called into question. I want to explain to you what he means by that. Every one of us wakes up and lives our lives with an understanding of our world, of our environment. And hope is that thing that comes in and flips everything onto its head. Hope is that thing that when you say to yourself, I got, I got to get through this, I got to get through this doctor's appointment, I got to get through this conversation with my spouse, I got to get through, and how am I going to do that? Hope is the thing that comes in and says, you know what? That doctor's appointment might go well. That conversation with your spouse might lead to further intimacy. Hope is the thing that flies in the face of reality. And it's our responsibility as a church, as Christians, to keep hope alive in our hearts and in our communities. Yeah, That's our responsibility. Yeah, amen. 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 Though there might be people around us who have given up hope, I want to tell you, when the presence of Jesus enters into this place, hope appears. Because Jesus is powerful enough to overcome the things in your life which present themselves as realities. And with the power of Jesus, you can see yourself to a better tomorrow. God has power to bring about hope. And so now we get to what, what Jesus says to the man. This God whom he has longed for is now present, is now before him. An amazing thing happens. Jesus says to him, stand up and take your mat and walk. See, the man couldn't move. He was paralyzed. But Jesus told him to stand. Jesus supplied the power which was necessary to carry out the calling that he put on the man. Jesus never gives you a calling if he's not going to give you the power that's necessary to carry it out. Oh God, I feel like I don't know how to talk to my neighbor. Jesus won't tell you to talk to your neighbor unless he's giving you the power to do so. Just show up and let Jesus talk. I want to pray for this person. I feel like my prayers aren't powerful enough to heal him. They're not. They're not powerful enough to heal this person. But Jesus can give the power that's necessary to fulfill the calling that you have. That's what hope is. Hope is saying, I may be facing a mountain, but I know that Jesus has the power to move this mountain. It's not faith in myself. See, that's the thing. It's not about positive thinking. It's not about lifting my mind out of myself. It's about putting my trust into Jesus instead of myself. The acknowledgement that I am paralyzed. But when Jesus tells me to stand, he's going to provide the power that's necessary to stand. So what's going on in your life? What are those things happening in your life, brothers and sisters? Where has the hope died out in your heart? 
What are the insurmountable situations you're facing? Jesus has the power to bring about a conclusion to that. Now, we talked about last week. I said that God is the one who decides when, then, where that happens. And I still fully submit to that. Like I said, I don't, I don't have any power to heal in and of myself. This is what it says in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 42. It's talking about the Messiah. It says, here is my servant, the Lord says. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes out of it, who gives breath to people upon it and spirit to those who walk. He says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the, dark, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, and that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Brothers and sisters, we, we serve a God who is not satisfied with the sin or the pain that's in your life. And I want to ask you, are you, do you want to be made well this morning? Would you believe that with me? We're going to pray for each other. And if you are new here, or if you are not yet a Christian, I want to just encourage you, please sit back, relax. It's all right. People will be praying for other people. You are very welcome to pray. You're very welcome to join us, but please feel no obligation to do so. You're welcome just to stay and just enjoy us, enjoy the presence, and we're going to have some uh, cookies and some coffee afterwards. But there's some people that say, I need a touch from God, and I'm not going to stand up here and talk about God touching people and then not give people an opportunity to receive a touch from God. That would be irresponsible of me. So if it makes you uncomfortable, please don't be uncomfortable. Just sit and relax. But there's people around you that may need some prayer. And we're going to pray for them. Okay? I'm not going to not pray for them. So this is what we're going to do. I want to invite you to find somebody. I will be up here. I'll be available to pray. But I'm not the only one uh, who needs to pray. And if there's more than one person who wants to have somebody pray for them, I can't do all that. I only have one set of hands. But there's people around you people that have also accepted Christ, people who also have the Spirit living inside of them, go to those people as well and ask, could you just pray for me? And this is, I think, a really extraordinary thing that I realized one day. It's not the power of the person who's praying. It has nothing to do with them. It has to do with the God to whom they're praying. Some of the most amazing transformative prayers in my life have been spoken by children. Uh, at a camp or something like that. I, I remember I went to one camp, and I was, a, uh, I was there doing the games for the kids. And none of my youth were at the camp. It was a middle school camp. We had only high school students. So I didn't even know anybody there. 
But some of, the, some of the younger kids, they'd gotten to know me because I did the games. And we did a prayer time. And, and the guy, you know, he said, all the youth pastors come up. So I went up. And he said, and all, all of the youth pastors, youth, you know, if, if your pastor's up here, come up here and pray for them. And I was like, well, this is going to be awkward. Uh, my youth aren't here. Um, and I kind of just stood there, you know, what are you going to do? And two young girls, they must have been in, in 12th grade, who knew me. Uh, and, and they came up when they saw nobody's praying for me. And they prayed over me. I want to tell you what, that prayer, it stuck with me. It sticks with me to today. There was something powerful in those girls that was praying. Okay? It has nothing to do with your ability, with your maturity, with the level that you're at as a Christian. It has everything to do with the God to whom you're praying. God can move through you. God can move through children. All right? So we're going to take some time to pray. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to be up here. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go to the piano. I'm going to challenge you guys not to come to me. Um, I'm going to go to the piano, and, and we're going to, I'm going to play some worship music uh, just to kind of allow, if you are sitting, you can worship. Um, but find somebody to pray with. All right, can I challenge you to do that? I'm going to, I'm going to close this in prayer right now. Um, find somebody to pray with. Okay, Lord, thank you so much for your presence. God, thank you for your graciousness to us. Thank you that you are good. And we acknowledge that you're at work. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill every single person here. If there's some among us today, Lord, some among us today who feel unworthy, who feel like their life uh, has no escape routes, who feel a loss of hope, who feel like that rat that just want to lay down and die. In the name of Jesus, we speak freedom over that person. Holy Spirit, you would come and break what the enemy has built up. That you would bring hope into a hopeless situation. That you would bring light into darkness. In the name of Jesus, I commission every single Christian in this room. You are a minister of Christ. Don't consider yourself less. For The Spirit of God rests in you. And that means that the God of the universe can work through you. So in the name of Jesus, you are a minister. Would you feel empowered to go out and minister the gospel? And that includes praying for people around you. So Lord, ignite our hearts. Ignite our hearts that we might be able to minister and serve before you and serve our communities, God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to spend